Good morning, everybody. So for today's message, I'm going to talk a little bit about outrage. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I say this time to time, um, and I'm going to say it again today. I don't know if I have this one quite figured out, to be honest. Um, there's so much that's gone on in the past week that makes me think I don't have it quite figured out. But that's what community is about anyway, right? It's about figuring it out together. It's about working together on this stuff. So let's think about... Um, outrage and do our best to work out what it means to live outrageously right now. And in order to do that, we're going to start by something that I think we should always start with, and that's um, talking about a time we got violently ill and threw up. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about right now. So go ahead, post it in the comments, talk about the time you got violently ill and threw up, talk about the food you can't eat now because you got violently ill and threw up. I remember mine so specifically. I was 12 years old. It was Christmas Day, and it was a big Christmas Day because my family took a ton of road trips. I mean, we took road trips all the time. And this particular Christmas Day, instead of having the 1984 Corolla, which we drove around in, and my sisters and I fought in the backseat over space the whole time, my parents for this Christmas got us a Plymouth minivan. It was the epitome of class, my friends, the epitome of class. And so we got in that minivan, and we drove around, all excited that we never have to fight over space again. And... Um, and I remember feeling a little queasy, like, oh, no, uh, I'm not feeling it. But I just chalked it up to the excitement of Christmas. Got home, ate a nice glazed chicken breast. Delicious. And then after that, I proceeded to get violently ill for the next 24 hours. It was terrible to the point that to this day, some 30 years later, I still cannot eat a glazed chicken breast. Wings, I'm fine with. Chicken legs, they're okay. Chicken breast, no, I cannot eat it. And I know you all have something like that, too, because most of us have something like this, because this is actually a biological and evolutionary component that we have in ourselves. Um, and it has the very scientific name of taste aversion. I know, right? Super scientific. And taste aversion um, happens um, for really important ways. So 5,000 years ago, when we were hunters and gatherers, we might eat some bad berries, or we might eat bad spoiled meat, or whatever the case may be, and our body would get sick, and then it would develop a taste aversion. It would say, don't eat these things again. They might kill you, right? So if you are here today listening on a live stream, you are here because your ancestors have incredible taste aversion. Nice job. Very, very good. Now, here's the thing with taste aversion. Taste aversion was really, really helpful then. It's not very helpful right now. In fact, I just read a study last week that said that taste aversions developed in human beings now, present day, can often hurt us. They actually stop us from getting the nutrients that we need, right? That's the issue now. Plus, we have the FDA. We have, like, sell by dates on packages. We don't need the taste aversion like we used to need. I mean, I'm probably missing out on some really delicious glazed chicken breast. Like, that's probably what I'm missing out on. Um, so, yeah, so we don't need that anymore. But here's what's really, really interesting, is that the same biological and evolutionary parts of us that create taste aversion actually create outrage in us. Isn't that interesting? They come from the same word or the same idea, and that is an idea of disgust, right? Disgust means to expel, and so our outrage is, in it, is we're expelling our anger, we're expelling pain, we're expelling sadness. That is outrage. And so way back when, you know, 5,000 years ago, when we saw a, a woolly mammoth approach us or when there was another tribe that wanted to mess with us, uh, what ended up happening 
is that our brains and our, our bodies would, would express outrage, and this outrage would compel us to do something. We would run away, we would fight, we would protect, whatever the case, we would do something to, to act upon this outrage. Now, here's the thing. When we acted upon this outrage, our bodies were like, good job, you acted on your outrage, I'm going to give you a hit of dopamine. Now, the dopamine is the pleasure chemicals that we get when we do something well. Um, and so it was this wonderful thing where, where we evolved in such a way where our, our bodies, our brains said, be outraged. And then we ran and then we fought and then we hid. We did whatever we needed to do. And our bodies went, good job. Here's some pleasure chemicals. <laughs> right? Now, that was good. That was good for us, especially back five, ten thousand years ago. Right? We were outraged maybe, you know, two three times a year, depending on what was going on, right? And it was something that kept our bodies going and our bodies contributed to that. And now we're here in present day. And just like these food aversions, perhaps outrage doesn't suit us in the same way it used to because the truth of the matter is that we can get absolutely outraged by anything. And we do get outraged by anything. Now, some of the stuff we get outraged about we absolutely should be outraged about. We should be outraged at the senseless lynching of Ahmaud Arbery this past, or, or back in February that came about this past week. We should be outraged about that. We should be outraged by the fact that our economic structure in this, com in this country is a house of cards. We had a booming economy until the sickness came around and all of a sudden the whole thing collapsed and fell apart. We should be outraged by that. We should be outraged, uh, we, we should be outraged by um, you know, the fact that, that we probably were really ill-prepared for this pandemic. That should outrage us. Now, there are other things, though, that we shouldn't be outraged about or maybe we don't need to think about as much. I mean, you know, I got into an argument with old Uncle Bill over in Tulsa, Oklahoma, about the severity of climate change, not whether or not climate change was real, just the severity about it. And I was outraged, right? Maybe I can save that outrage a little bit. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. OK, our bodies still think that this is 5,000 years ago, and they still think that we're being chased by woolly mammoths. And so every time we're outraged on anything, about anything on Twitter or on Facebook, or anytime we're outraged about what some subreddit has or whatever, our body is still going, huh, there must be a lot of woolly mammoths out there because there's a lot of outrage going on, and I still need to give these shots of dopamine to people. And so what we're doing is we're sitting in front of our computers getting these shots of dopamine. Right? Because we are continuously and constantly outraged. In fact, you want to know why you're tired? Because your body doesn't, you know, doesn't need to have that much dopamine. Your body doesn't need that much adrenaline rushing through it all the time. That's why you're constantly tired, because we are constantly outraged. So what do we do with this outrage? How do we go about handling outrage? How do we go about parsing out appropriate response to outrage? like the senseless murder of Ahmaud Arbery versus maybe outrage that's not as appropriate, getting into that argument with your best friend's sister's cousin's husband over, you know, whether or not you should eat this type of food on Facebook, right? When do we, when do we best, when do we best use our outrage? How do we best use our outrage? And so the question becomes this, right? Where do we go? Well, we're Christians. And so y'all raise your hand because you know the answer to this question where are we going to go to find out what we do with our outrage? We are going to go to, type it in the comments, y'all, 
to Jesus, right? We're going to go to Jesus. Now, here's what I want to tell you first and foremost. We know that Jesus was compassionate. I'm glad that Jesus was compassionate. I'm glad that we lead with compassion in the way we live our lives. I'm glad for that. Um, But here's what else I can tell you. Jesus wasn't always compassionate. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to put compassion aside. I don't want to talk about compassion today. I want to talk what Jesus does in the midst of outrage. So there are a couple different times, a couple different experiences that Jesus was outraged. Uh, And, um, and, you know, Jesus, yeah, the, the way I picture Jesus, who is the really angry one in the movie Inside Out? This was what Jesus looked like when Jesus was outraged. It was like that, right? And so Jesus gets outraged. I'm going to read the first one for you. It's one that we all know, and so I'll read it. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now this... Oh, my gosh. This gets used for absolutely everything. People are like, you know, um, oh, well, yeah, this week we posted about how we affirm the LGBTQIA community. And somebody commented and said, we shouldn't like those people the same way Jesus didn't like people in the temple and, and, and brought them out or, or, or told them to leave. And I was like, what a what a terrible use of this passage or hey, maybe we shouldn't use AR-15s. And then people will be like, I want to use my AR-15 because Jesus Drove people out of the temple. You're like, all right, whatever. Like, it's been used in some really weird ways. And I've preached on this a bunch, but it's always worth talking about again. What was it that Jesus was angry about? What was Jesus experiencing outrage from? Again, it was a racket at the temple. Very poor people were coming in, having raised an animal for sacrifice. The priests, those in charge, were saying that the animal wasn't good enough and that they would have to buy a different animal at, you know, a hundred times the rate that they could afford. You think it's tough with toilet paper and hand sanitizer. It was really, really tough at the temple. And so this was a racket. It would put people in massive debt. It would put poor people in places where they couldn't pay back debts. And it was all for the sake of sacrifice. Now, here's the terrible part. The terrible part is that once those people left, you know, the priest would say, hey, we'll take your blemished animal from you. Don't worry, we'll dispose of it. And then the next poor family would roll in and the priest would do the same thing and they would sell the previous animal. Like, do we understand the amount of greed and the amount of of profits over humanity you would have to have to do this? Of course we understand it because we see the same thing happen now. So what's Jesus upset with? Or what's Jesus outraged by? He's outraged by the fact that there are prophets over people. He's outraged over the fact that the ruling class gets richer while the poor, the poor class, the, uh, the, the, yeah, the poor get poorer. Jesus is outraged that there is inequity amongst classes. Jesus is outraged that, that Jesus is, or God's um, children, that God's creation, some are considered less than and some are considered better than. This is what Jesus is outraged by. It is inequity to the fullest. When's another time Jesus was outraged? There's a time that Jesus was upset with the Pharisees, right? Now, the Pharisees, listen, they get a bad rap. Basically, just substitute the word pastors in there. So every time we read, and the Pharisees said, just go, and the pastors all said, right? These are, like, it's not everybody. It's not all all people. Um, But but this is true in this case, right? So Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees a lot. And in one particular case, he says this to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Why is Jesus mad at the Pharisees? The best I can do, the best I can do is give you an example from today's times, okay? I'm going to try to parallel this um, to create more outrage in this, because why not? Last year, there was a congressman in Pennsylvania, and this congressman brought a bill before the House. It was an anti-abortion bill. This congressman said any woman who gets an abortion after X amount of weeks should be held criminally responsible for it. Right? So this person wanted to criminalize women and their choice. That's what this person wanted to do. And, uh, and, and so it was going to happen. They, they would be criminally responsible, even if it was a safety issue, even if it was a, a major concern or a life-changing concern. Otherwise, this person said, no, I'm so against abortion that we should absolutely make it a crime. And then it turned out that this guy had a mistress and his mistress got pregnant. And so what did this representative do? This representative said, hey, pregnant mistress, why don't you go ahead and have an abortion? That is the level of hypocrisy that if there is a hell, this person will end up there for that kind of hypocrisy. And I don't say those words lightly. In fact, maybe I shouldn't have said them at all. But anyway, but anyway, that is the outrage that Jesus feels with the Pharisees. They have that same level of hypocrisy. They have the same level of, hey, I'm going to tell you one thing, but then I'm going to go do something else. In fact, the Pharisees had physical, legal precedent to hurt people, to arrest people if they didn't do what was said, and yet they're going and doing something completely different. Right? It was hypocrisy at its finest. Jesus was outraged at their hypocrisy. This is, the, again, the exploitation of the poor. It's a model of, yeah, it's, it's a model of a ruling class hurting a lower class, right? This is, this is the lack of equity between religious leaders and people for whom they're supposed to care. That's why Jesus was outraged. So what did Jesus do with this outrage? What did he do? What did he do when he was angry? Well, nothing. He sat in front of a computer. Nah, no, no. One time he put like an angry-faced emoji at somebody that did something. Jesus ran 2.23 miles and called it a day. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What's interesting is that Jesus, every single time, brought peacemaking with his outrage. Peacemaking with his outrage. Now, that's, that's huge. I'm going to tell you why that's huge. Because sometimes when we think about making peace, we think about peacekeeping. In fact, we get them confused often. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. Peacekeeping is seeing a problem and, go, and, and moving as quickly as we can to, to make sure that that problem is done, is finished, whether that problem is solved or not. My parents in the room, we are peacekeepers during this pandemic because our kids are fighting and we know there's an underlying issue, but because we don't have the energy to solve it, we say instead to our kids, kids, go watch Disney Plus. And it gives us a little bit of peace, right? That's peacekeeping, okay? Jesus was a peacemaker. And to be a peacemaker meant you confronted an issue head on. To be a peacemaker meant that when you were outraged, it drew you to action. That is the difference. To be a peacemaker means your outrage draws you to action. And so what Jesus did every time is he said, hey, there's inequity. That's going to move me to action, which means the people that you're exploiting in the temple are now the people that I call my beloved. 
And then Pharisees, the people that you're saying are hypocritical, that aren't loved, I'm telling you that they're the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven, not you. Jesus always moves from outrage to action. And so how do we, in turn, live that way? How do we live where every single time we're outraged, we're doing more than just staring at our computers, being outraged for a few minutes and getting our dopamine hit and then moving on to the next thing that outrages us? How are we getting up and taking action in this process? How are we outrageous peacemakers just like Jesus? I love what uh, uh, Chauncey Chibwe says about this. She says, Jesus' outrage always does this. It always, his rage was always for people and always towards love. Jesus did not make noise to be heard. He exhibited passion for a purpose, and that person or that purpose was always people. And so in what way does our outrage move us to action? And so now's where I'm going to get a little practical. And maybe I don't have it quite figured out. I'd love to hear some of what you think about this. How do we move out from being outraged to, to outrageous peacemaking the same way Jesus does it? I think we have to start, number one, and this one's hard for me today. We start with valuing all of humanity. That's where we start. And I'm having a tough time saying that even. Um, I don't want to value all of humanity. I don't want to value anyone who might think differently at all about Ahmaud Arbery's murder. And I don't want to value them. In fact, there's an outrage that I feel is pretty, pretty permanent there. And there's a, a call to action that's really important there. We'll get to that in a minute. But I don't want to value all of humanity. And yet, that's what Jesus does. Not valuing humanity creates cancel culture. And cancel culture is peacekeeping, right? Cancel culture says, I see this issue, and I want this issue done. And I want it done right now, which means I'm going to cancel anyone that might have a different opinion or a different thought or a different way of thinking about this. That's what cancel culture does. Cancel culture says, I want to ruin your livelihood without getting to the bottom of the actual issue. That's what cancel culture does. Now, I will say this. Sometimes cancel culture is important, but cancel culture is important once we have done the work. You see, lots of times when we think about cancel culture, we're like, what's the quickest way I can move from A to Z without having to get muddy, right? I canceled that person. I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's peacekeeping. That's the same thing as having our kids watching Disney+. Plus. Instead, we get into it. And we say, now, why is this a different point of view? Why is this something you think? Why is this something that you would even adhere to? And maybe, just maybe, when we value humanity, there's a resolution. Not all the time, but maybe. And then sometimes, after we've done the hard work and we've gotten muddy and it's been difficult, we do have to cancel people. Sometimes we simply have to say to them this. We have to say, you know what? I, I don't want you to starve but you can't eat at my table any longer. And that's okay. And that's all right to do. But it's okay to do after we have done the work, after we have valued humanity. In fact, our American hero, Brene Brown, says this. She says, dehumanizing and holding people accountable are mutually exclusive. Humiliation and dehumanization are not accountability or social justice tools. They're just emotional offloading at best, emotional self-indulgence at worst. And if our faith asks us to find the face of God in everyone we meet, that should include the politicians, the media, the strangers on Twitter with whom we most violently disagree. And when we desecrate their divinity, we desecrate our own and we betray our faith. Now I say this, and I just want to be clear that this is a privileged thing to say. 
not often do we get a chance to value all of humanity, especially when our humanity is not valued. And I want to say that, especially right now, at a time when there are, you know, our, our black siblings, our black identifying siblings are in a place where their humanity is not valued over and over and over again. And so I say that, knowing that this is something that as a church, I want us to continue to wrestle with. But I do think that at the end of the day, we are outrageous peacemakers when we at least start with valuing humanity. We are outrageous peacemakers when we question our motivations. Why are we motivated to be outraged? Are we motivated to be outraged because everybody else is outraged? You know, there have been times where I have appropriately not been outraged. And then I get on Pastor Twitter. Y'all, Pastor Twitter is like sharks feeding. Let me tell you, we're a mess, us pastors. And uh, I get on Pastor Twitter, and Pastor Twitter's like, if you're not outraged about this, and if you don't talk about it with your church this coming Sunday, then you should quit your church and move far away from your congregation and never come back. And I'm like, oh, shoot, maybe I should be upset about this. And so then I'll say something about something I'm not really that outraged about. What is our motivation? Are we outraged because everybody else is? Are we outraged because there's pressure to be outraged? Are we outraged because there's guilt if we are not outraged? And in terms of something like what we've dealt with this week, with the senseless lynching, if we're not outraged, maybe it's time to question that motivation. Why are we not? What are we not seeing? What have we been taught that maybe does not work for us any longer? Question your motivation. Questioning motivation brings outrageous peacemaking. Know when you are being played. We become outrageous peacemakers when we know when we're being played. Uh, fake news, something we've heard a ton of. But we get outraged a lot over fake news. Now, I usually don't say stuff like this because I feel like it's a big humble brag and I don't want to humble brag. But in this case, I'm going to say it because I think it's helpful. Uh, about 18 months ago, I wrote a book. When I wrote this book, uh, there were a lot of like newspaper articles about it and a lot of TV shows that I did. And so I got this firsthand experience with media. And here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that, yeah, for the most part, they will report facts, but I can also tell you that our media is way more concerned with creating outrage and sensation rather than simply reporting just those facts. In fact, I can tell you that of the, I don't even know how many times, let's say 30, 30 times I did you know, television or newspaper stuff, there were two times, two times that those organizations reported just facts. Every other time my words were taken out of context, used to sensationalize. Sometimes I would say something and it was a completely different question that was asked of me, but yet it was put with another question. Yeah, they report facts. But yeah, media also wants to sensationalize and make us outraged. They know that those dopamine hits lead to clicks. And so last week I said something about, I said, you know, um, I said, I've been feeling like people are stupid. You know, people are stupid, and instead, I keep saying people are scared. And I believe that, but I also need to think that about myself. Something like protests across our nation, or some of our uh, state capitals. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these people, thousands of people are protesting. This is ridiculous. Our world's going to hell in a handbasket. And then you take a step back and you realize it's not thousands, it's not even hundreds. The fact of the matter is, 99% of our people are staying at home, doing what they need to, and we're getting outraged by the 1%. Is that where we need to put, is that where we need to put our energy? 
Outrageous peacemaking happens when we know or pay attention to the fact that we might be being played. And then this is the most important one because this is the one that Jesus did. When we are outraged, we choose action. We choose action over reaction when we are outraged. The reaction is going to give us that nice dopamine hit, right? That's what's going to happen. But it's the action that's going to matter. It's the action that brings the kingdom of God. It is the action that ushers in the next 500 years. If you are not being, if you're not active, all right, maybe, maybe it's time to question your motives for being outraged. So this week, when Amarad Arbery does, does get senselessly lynched, white siblings, I just want to talk to, you, to us for a minute. We can be outraged about that. But how is that going to become action for us? What are we going to do to step up and know that this isn't something that happened once? This is something that always happens. This is a history of oppression. This is a history of systemic hurt. This is a history of systemic inequity. White siblings, I'm talking to us right now. Perhaps it's time for us to start learning a little bit. And we're not going to learn by talking to our siblings of color. We're not going to learn that way. We're going to learn by doing our own work. And I know as Forefront Church works, we have a, a, we call it our white people anti-racist group. And it's a group where we can do our work. It's a group where we can learn and we can do it without burdening our siblings of color. And so I encourage you to join that. I encourage you to find other anti-racist trainings around. I can, I encourage you to step up. And when your white friends and white siblings are saying this or that, and we know their microaggressions, call them out on their microaggressions. Let's act when something like this happens. What are we going to do so that our children, so that our children aren't in the same place that we are, so that we end a cycle of inequity and, and oppression? I know that Forefront works to act as often as we can. You might know that Samaritan's Purse came into to New York and they came in to help out uh, during this, this pandemic. You might also know that Samaritan's Purse has a strong anti-LGBTQIA stance. And so what Forefront did, led by Sarah New, so I want to give Sarah lots of credit here, was Forefront said, you know what, we're all for people helping. We don't want to create cancel culture. But we also don't think it's right that Samaritan's Purse is making people sign waivers that they must adhere to their values, especially when their values are so damaging. And so Sarah New was part of a press conference that called out Samaritan's Purse and said, you're welcome to help so long as you're willing to help all people, not just some people. So long as you're willing uh, to, to make sure that everyone uh, is able to do this, not just some people who sign a waiver. And it turns out that, that Sarah's group was broken up by the police. Nice job, Sarah. That's a good story, by the way. Not only that, but it turns out that Samaritan Purse decided that they needed to go. So that's also what happened. But our, our, our outrage should turn to action, outrageous peacemaking action. Jordan Perry, who works with, uh, who is a, a probation officer, was outraged by the fact that there are people who had served their time in prison and still weren't getting parole hearings. They were getting sick. COVID is happening. People are hurting, right? And so what do we do? Well, instead of sitting in front of the computer and getting angry, Jordan said, hey, why don't we all go up to Albany? Why don't we talk to our state representatives? Why don't we start to move people to enact laws that allow Asian people to be released from prison, especially because they have done their time already? We don't want any more, um, we don't want people getting sick. We don't want people dying. That's not the sentence they received. That is... Outrage turned to action. Church, 
There's so much we can do. We have a long way to go. There's so many gray areas in this conversation. But I absolutely believe that when we, well, that we will, we will usher in the next 500 years. And there's your, there's your bingo. There it is right there. We will usher in the next 500 years. When our outrage isn't just so we can get that dopamine hit. That doesn't help us any longer. We will usher in the next 500 years when our outrage always moves us to do the same thing that Jesus would do. Like I always say, those bracelets were pretty good things. And what did Jesus always do? Jesus said, I see inequity. I'm outraged by it. And it moves me to outrageous peacemaking. There's a long way to go. There's a lot that we can do. But I can tell you that we are going to usher in the next 500 years when all of us become outrageous peacemakers. And if it hasn't begun today, let's begin it today, knowing that everybody is made in the image of God. And let's not stop until there is no more inequity and that every single person absolutely, without a doubt, knows, recognizes, and believes that each and every one of us are siblings in Christ made perfectly in the image of God of God. And all the people said, Amen. Hello, I'm Robbie Elliott.